One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Thanks for downloading this podcast of NewsHour Extra. This is Owen Bennett-Jones and our subject today, the Zika virus. Now, obviously, there's been a lot of coverage of this issue over the last few days in general news programmes, but it is a massive problem. It's causing a huge amount of suffering to many, many families, and it is also scaring a lot of people. So it just seemed important to get some of the facts out there and to get people who really do understand what's going on to explain exactly what's happening. And I've got Piers Lynch with me now, producer of this programme, and uh, you basically thought, as you could see this coming in, that this this really matters to a lot of people. Yeah, it struck me uh, when I was taking the tube. There's a free paper they hand out. Uh, it's called the Metro, and it's usually full of, you know, what One Direction breaking up means and uh, all that type of thing. But uh, three pages of it were dedicated to the Zika virus and the sort of global health impact that it was having in Brazil, whether you should go on honeymoon there. And it struck me that like Ebola before it, this idea of a global pandemic and a global health concern had gone beyond people who usually are interested in the news to general concern amongst people that there is a virus that is a threat to their their health. Right. And then there's another issue, which is, are these pandemics becoming more frequent? Yeah. And again, it's that the fascination of, uh, of sort of Hollywood, that there is a silent killer waiting somewhere out there that all it takes is to transfer from an ape or a bat or, you know, to transfer into humans. And it's going to be catastrophic health event globally. Well, to discuss all of this, we have Peter Dashak from the EcoHealth Alliance. Now, that's an organisation that basically tries to predict future pandemics, future uh, health problems, fascinating modelling that they do. Uh, Dr. Abdullah Zaraba from Nairobi. He's with the African Population and Health Research Centre. And then here in London, Claire Wenham from the London School of Economics. She studies global health politics. Professor Jimmy Whitworth from the leading institution in this area, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, Professor of International Public Health there. And we've also got Tulip Mazumda, who is the BBC's Global Health correspondent. So look, uh, I think what we should do at the beginning of this is just get some of the basics. People will have heard the news and probably have some of it already. But just to run through the basic facts in a reliable and steady way. Can I ask you, first of all, how is Zika spread? How many people have the virus? And how many people is it a big problem for? Who wants to start on that? Why don't you, Tuna? It's thought more than one million people are infected with Zika virus, but it's unclear because it's actually very difficult to diagnose. It's a mosquito-borne virus. It's passed on through the uh, Aedes mosquito, which also carries uh, dengue and yellow fever. For most people, it's not actually thought to be particularly dangerous. People normally get sick. I think 80% don't even show any symptoms. Um, But those that do, they'll have a mild fever, a rash, maybe conjunctivitis, so uh, itchy red eyes, but they'll usually clear the virus within around a week or so. The issue that we've heard so much about over the last few weeks is, of course, this potential link to babies being born with small heads and underdeveloped brains, this condition called microcephaly. Okay, so let's deal with microcephaly then. I could come to you, perhaps, Claire Wenham, on that. What is it? How dangerous is it? So microcephaly is believed to be, it's a, it's a fetal abnormality which babies are developing within the wombs. As Tulip has said, it's a birth defect which causes 
um, small heads and, and lack of head development as well as brain development on that and with associated neurological conditions which go along with that. And babies who are born with this aren't expected to have a very long lifespan and, and are going to be considerably disabled from this birth defect. Yes, I wanted to ask you about the lifespan. So some die in utero, isn't it? So, so some are stillborn, as it were. And, and then other cases, people die in infancy. And how, how, what's the longest life expectancy you'd, you'd expect? Is anyone, can anyone help me with that? I think this is such a heterogeneous condition that you can get really any degree of this. So you're right, there are some that are killed in infancy or even before they're born, others that will survive more or less a normal lifespan. So it's very variable for the parents what they're coping with. Indeed, and that's part of the problem at the moment, that we have such uncertainty about what we can tell parents. Uh, Peter Dashak, can you just uh, tell us where this is now prevalent? Where Where is the big problem? Yeah, right now, the big issue is Latin America. Um, Brazil has a lot of cases. It's spread throughout the majority, really, of Latin America now and into the Caribbean. And there are also cases popping up in the United States. OK, and, and what about the spread of it? Is it we, we've heard about the spread. Is that a real threat? It spreads very efficiently. I mean, the, the problem, of course, is that people get on planes and travel. And if you um, are infected uh, and you land in your home country and you happen to be bitten by the right mosquito, there's a, a chance that the virus will then be transmitted. Um, and mosquitoes fly as well. So once it establishes a few cases in a country, there's a potential for it to spread quite widely. Right. And can I just uh, p- pursue that a bit? Because you're describing a situation where the mosquito gets infected and then bites someone else. But the, I, I read something about sexual transmission of that. Is that a real threat? Tulip, do you know about that? This week, we've heard about a case in the US where a man who was infected with or a person who was infected with Zika is believed to have passed it on through sexual contact uh, with their partner. Now, this is very under-researched. We we simply don't know, uh, as with many things with this virus, exactly what the facts are here. There has been at least one case in the past, it was also in the US, incidentally, where a man returned from a, from a country uh, which had Zika there. It was in Africa. Uh, He came back and his partner was also infected with Zika. There was no other way for her to have caught it other than through her husband who uh, who was infected with Zika. So at the moment, the advice differs depending on where you are. I mean, here in the UK, for example, Public Health England are advising men who've come back from Zika hit countries to wear protection if they're at risk of getting somebody pregnant uh, for a month. If they are infected with Zika and they have that confirmed, they're suggesting to wait for six months before they have sex without protection. Uh, The World Health Organization says it is looking into this more clearly. The Centers for Disease Control in the US has also published new advice on this, but this is very much new territory and they're trying to find out exactly what it means. But everybody at this point is saying there is limited risk at the moment, as far as we know. No, clearly there's lots of research going on to try and get some of these basic facts up established. And Dr. Zaraba, let's just come to you. And just could you help us with the point that just as we've been hearing, really, lots of people have this with no problem, right? Just tell us a bit about the the prevalence and who's at risk. Yeah, I think uh, traditionally what people thought or knew uh, seems to be changing and uh, the facts are sort of uh, being turned around. The the traditionally known symptoms of uh, those that are really mild fever, headache, joint pain, the rash, and uh, conjunctivitis, and stuff like that. But now, with uh, the new development in Latin America, we're seeing uh, something more worrying. Uh, A child with uh, microcephaly 
is uh, really condemned to be mentally uh, disabled, physically disabled, and uh, the consequences of that are, are really grave. So, and then the other complication that uh, have not been mentioned is the the paralysis that uh, that uh, that has also been highlighted as a possibility, a, po- a possible consequence of this infection. GBS, the Guillain-Barré syndrome. It's also being associated with uh, with this infection. Oh, is that right? And and th- this, that, that, that's a known thing. So tell us, what, what what are the symptoms of that? Paralysis, weakness of muscles because of uh, damage to the nerves. So it's another very serious condition. And you're saying that would affect many more people, not just pregnant women. Yes, exactly. Let, let's just stick to Latin America, South America, where this is happening now, where people really are worried. And uh, last weekend, actually, thousands of revelers attended warm-up festivities for the carnival in Rio, and this is what they were saying. Actually, I should be worried about Zika, but now I'm just having fun, you know? I just want to have fun. (laughs) We are all worried. This is a very grave matter in Brazil. I hope it doesn't scare visitors away. But it's carnival, so I decided to play around a bit. I'm kind of afraid because I had Zika in December and now I have another rash and I don't know what's going on because I don't know if I'm really immune or if I can have it twice. I don't know. (laughs) Well, lots of questions. It's bound to be like that. And the the president of the Venezuelan Pediatric Society, Juniadi Zabina, believes that the numbers in Venezuela are going to rise sharply and the outbreak there could become a real problem. Because in Venezuela, as in the rest of the Americas, it is a new virus, so the preventative measures to control the Aedes mosquitoes are not effective in Venezuela because there are lots of places in Venezuela, including in the capital, Caracas, which don't have a daily running drinking water service, which means that people have to store water in containers and clean water is where the mosquitoes lay their eggs. Secondly, sometimes you can't buy insecticide to kill mosquitoes in homes. Thirdly, there is no insect repellent in the pharmacies, so there are insufficient quantities to slow the reproduction of mosquitoes in Venezuela. The national government should start fumigating in all rural areas firstly, and it isn't fumigating. The health minister says that there are 4,700 Zika cases but there is no official report from anywhere. And you have to remember that for every four infected patients, only one of them has symptoms. There is a lack of condoms and contraceptives, which means, of course, we are going to have a lot more pregnancies than we usually have, and with that, the risk of them being contaminated with the Zika virus. And that was uh, Juniadas Abina from the Venezuelan Pediatric Society. So let's just look at uh, South America. Professor Whitworth, can you just help us with why it's happened in Brazil, we're hearing Venezuela and some of these South American countries? I think there are probably two reasons why this is happening, or at least two theories as to why it's happening. The first is that here we have a population that has never seen this virus before, so they have no immunity whatsoever. So once it gets into the population, it just spreads through it very, very rapidly. There are also a few hints that the virus has evolved, has had a few mutations in its emergence from Africa, and that these might allow it to actually transmit more efficiently 
from person to person through mosquitoes. Right, I think, Dr Zaraba, that's your worry, isn't it? That it, it could have got stronger in some way in, La- in South America and then come back to Africa and cause much more damage. That that is a really a concern because if the assertion is reconfirmed, really then uh, the, the implications, public health implications, will be grave, and uh, uh, of course uh, in in Africa that will be a special concern. Uh, high fertility, uh, abundance of uh, the vector that transmits the the virus, and uh, poor health systems that uh, could probably respond to this. So. But also, we're not sure whether these actually event happened, but they were never picked up earlier in, in Africa, for example, in the early 50s and the 40s and also 60s. We don't know whether actually some of these things happened, but were never picked, and maybe the population has gotten some kind of immunity. There, there is need for a lot of research to be carried out uh, all over the, the world to see where the burden lies and what kind of strain that we're seeing. So we're really just hoping for the best that this, having been declared a global emergence, uh, then actions will be taken faster and uh, stem the spread of the virus. And, and Peter Tashik, what's your take? Because I know that you try and predict pandemics and try and look at the patterns of these things. What's your take on why South America? Well, um, there's been a lot of movement of people into and out of Brazil in the last few years. And um, when you get mass events like um, big football matches, um, the World Cup... People travel from all over the world to those events, and it's quite possible that an infected person would come in with that. When you do the mathematics on um, the number of planes traveling, the number of mosquitoes that hit your ride on plane, the number of, of infected birds that migrate, you can sort of tease apart the most likely pathway. So for some viruses, it's mosquitoes hitching a ride on planes. For others, it's um, birds that carry the virus um, flying from one place to another. And probably for Zika, it... it it could have been a human case coming into Brazil and just sparking off the initial outbreak. The thing is, every year we travel more and more. And if you look at travel and trade networks, um, there is exponential growth, especially in the rapidly developing countries, places where these uh, pandemics often originate. So we are primed for these events. They're not unexpected. and They are fairly predictable once they start. Claire Wenham. I just want to add something which I think we need to champion, which is the efficiency of the Brazilian health service. Um, Brazil has got a, a universal health coverage. It's got a, a very eff- effective and efficient disease surveillance system. So it was able on its own to detect this outbreak and this outbreak of Zika much more rapidly than may have happened had it occurred in a different part of the world, like we saw with Ebola. And I think we need to really celebrate this and show that effective, strong health systems and disease surveillance systems allow us to t- detect outbreaks like Zika much more quickly. That's a very- Fair point, because we always hear about the ones that can't do it, uh, and here's a case. But 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 there was a case with associations with microcephaly in in French Polynesia. It was, and and there, I guess, the health system was less able to deal with it. That's a very interesting one. It was not reported at the time of the outbreak in in French Polynesia, but when people went back to have a look to see if maybe there had been microcephaly in French Polynesia in the outbreak that they had there, they found that, yes, there had been. But, and this is a crucial difference, um, therapeutic abortion is legal and practised in French Polynesia, and there were a lot of abortions that were carried out on pregnant women who had been infected with Zika. Now, that is not an option in nearly all of Latin America. Well, you've just raised a subject we were going to get on to, because it's, it's a very difficult subject, this. And in fact, there's conflicting advice coming from some officials. You know, people saying, 
I don't know what the law is, but I'm a health official and I'm saying this. So let's just hear a bit of that. This is from El Salvador, where people are worried. And there have been more than 6,000 suspected cases since the virus was first confirmed there November last year. And the government has advised women not to get pregnant for a year or more. This is the country's vice health minister, Dr Eduardo Espinosa, uh, defending the move in an interview on the uh, BBC NewsHour. Bueno, mire... Look, in Brazil, 3,900 babies have been born with microcephaly. 3,900 children and 49 of them have died. Put yourself in the shoes of those 3,900 families. What would it mean for you and your family to have a child with microcephaly? If that can be prevented by planning and postponing pregnancy, we're not talking about prohibiting it, then I think couples should really consider this. And if a woman is pregnant, the couple is responsible for taking all measures necessary for her to avoid getting bitten by a mosquito. But we have mosquitoes in the whole country. We're in a head-on fight against the vector, and we're hoping we'll be able to reduce the numbers. But in the meantime, the mosquitoes will continue to bite, and they will bite pregnant women. So, Tulip, this gets us on to the issue of contraception, whether it's legal, whether it's available, and what the governments are saying about what people should do. I think this is, as you've pointed out, a very difficult and thorny issue. And the advice from the World Health Organization at the moment is that this is a decision that women and their partners have to make together, and that clearly they are not in a position to tell people what to do. So this has raised the uh, abortion debate uh, in Latin America, where, I mean, there are very few, if any, any any countries that allow uh, abortions. And this is the issue. It's how realistic is advice like that? You know, you're essentially asking people not to have sex, you know, in some countries where contraception isn't very readily available. If you're giving that sort of advice, really, how realistic is it? And uh, there's been a lot of discussion and, and anger, frankly, from people in these countries saying that's very unhelpful. OK, before we uh, close this first half of the programme, can I just ask all of you pretty much the same question? We'll start with you, Peter Dashak, and then go to you, Dr Zaraba, in Nairobi, which is just how big is this, actually? Because some people are saying that, you know, the media and the World Health Organisation even are, are slightly overdoing it. So, so, Peter Dashak, first of all, what's your take on that? Well, it's, it's already a pandemic. So um, it's spread internationally from one continent to another, and it's likely to spread further. So it, it's an issue. Um, the link to microcephaly isn't as as um, clear. There's not a mechanistic understanding of that yet. There's not very good evidence. But I think that the, the very important thing to remember is that what often drives the impact of pandemics is fear and concern. Um, and I don't think this is being driven um, by you know, World Health or, or the media, people are genuinely concerned. This this goes right to the heart of you as a person when you see a picture of, of a baby with a, a deformed head. It's a, it's a harrowing thing to see. And I think that's part of the horror of, of this disease. So I think it, it's going to be big in terms of the geographic spread, but also in terms of the public concern about it. And Dr. Zaraba, where do you think that geographic spread is going to be? We have the global travel, global trade and all that. So other continents will be uh, affected too, I, I, I suppose. But uh, drawing on the lessons that we learned from the HIV epidemic and uh, the Ebola in West Africa, 
I think uh, this might be handled differently. And uh, declaration by the WHO that this is a, a global public health emergency, I think, has drawn attention to this problem. And uh, we will see uh, action coalescing around these issues. Yes, yeah. we've gone into you actually with a senior WHO official. First of all, just on your take on the, the scale of this, Professor Whitworth? I think the virus infection itself isn't anything particularly to worry about. It's the complications. So it is the microcephaly, if that link is proven. We're hearing there's a 20-fold increase in the rate in Brazil at the moment. If that spreads more widely, that is very concerning. The Guillain-Barre, this ascending paralysis that you get, uh, that also is something that is potentially fatal. If this infection gets into mosquitoes and travels around the tropics and the subtropics, we could have a much bigger epidemic than we have now. Yeah, I I think I I agree with what Professor Whitworth is saying, which is that it's not the disease itself which might pose the problem or the size of the disease. It's it's the complications and the associations with the pregnant pregnant people and babies. And actually the disease itself, even if it does spread to the tropics or the subtropics, which is obviously where a large proportion of the world's um, population live, it's still only going to be of concern to the small percentage of women of childbearing age who might be planning to have a baby or a pregnant. The World Health Organization has explicitly said that this isn't about the Zika virus on its own. This is about this potential link to microcephaly. So I think a key thing to consider here is how much isn't known. And that is the real concern and how there isn't enough research even making this link to microcephaly at the moment. All we've seen is a rise, a spike in Zika cases at the same time we've seen a spike in microcephaly cases. Now, the WHO says there's a strong suspected link there and the numbers strongly suggest that. But I think that the most worrying thing at the moment is how much we don't know. And, of course, not knowing things always inspires fear in people and and that is why this sort of action is, is needed, an international ac- yeah. action. And, and, and understandable fear. I mean, absolutely. So, so, Peter Daschet, can you just finally just pin down for us that the, the mosquito that causes this, that, that carries this, is obviously it's prevalent we, 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 in, in Africa because it comes from the Zika forest in Uganda, isn't it? Uh, and and then it's we've heard it's in French Polynesia and now in South America. Where else does that mosquito live? Pantropical, across the tropics. So the potential spread is is global in the tropics and the subtropics. And, and actually, it, even as far north as, um, as, as parts of southern U.S. So that's why there's a, quite a concern in the U.S., for instance. And, and what about Europe? There are a very few isolated pockets of, of this mosquito in, in Europe. And they are around the Black Sea and isolated islands, so Madeira happens to have these. But the worry is that there is a related mosquito uh, called Aedes albopictus that is thought to be a competent vector from laboratory studies. And if the virus was to get into that mosquito, then it could spread more widely. We're actually going to talk about the whole debate surrounding the attempts to kill mosquitoes and maybe eradicate mosquitoes in the second half of the programme. Tulip Mazumda, I know you have to go. You're going to be leaving us. Thank you very much for your contribution. If uh, you want to follow us on Twitter at BBCNHExtra, email, we've got a new address, uh, newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk. So that's a, uh, a new email address, newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk. You're listening to The World Service of the BBC.
And we're going to hear in the second half of the programme, first of all, from the World Health Organisation, which on February the 1st declared that the, not actually the Zika virus, but as we've heard, the Zika virus's potential link with microcephaly, they declared that a public health emergency of international concern. And I've been speaking with Dr Bruce Aylward, who is the organisation's Assistant Director General and the Interim Executive Director of the new programme for Outbreaks and Health Emergencies. So, they've made that declaration. What difference will it make? What it does is it helps to coordinate international action in terms of a response. So we need three big things to happen. Surveillance for the mosquito, the virus, and microcephaly. We need a response. on This is really to care for these children, but also to uh, control the virus in case that's what's causing this. And thirdly, research, a big research agenda, developing better diagnostics, possibly a vaccine, as well as understanding causation. You can't do that without a coordinated international effort. Now there are those who say that so far the numbers involved in this disease, this epidemic, are not great enough to justify a global health emergency and that you're reacting rather, you're sort of fighting the last war like generals do and reacting to the slow response the WHO made on Ebola. Uh, Fair comment? Um, Not at all. In fact, uh, the committees that look at these issues are different and at no time was it ever looking at any issue other than, frankly, the microcephaly cluster. To have two clusters um, a year apart, uh, a very serious disease like this, unexplained, possibly associated with the movement of a virus that's spreading very, very rapidly, and given where the vector is, the mosquito that carries it, could cover a very big part of the world quickly. This is something you need to understand as a matter of emergency very, very quickly. Are epidemics or pandemics becoming more common? I think if we look back over the last uh, 10, 15 years and we look at um, the emergence of new pathogens, uh, whether now the Zika virus, previously H1N1, we've got uh, MERS coronavirus in the Middle East, um, SARS virus before that, it's clear that the world is changing. And what we are seeing probably as a result of a complex combination, we always use that when we don't know exactly what's going on, Um, in terms of population growth, urbanization, deforestation, interface of animals and humans getting closer. All of these factors are affecting the emergence of viruses in the human population and the rapid spread. And those are very broad social trends. So from what you've just said, it won't be easy to prevent this. Absolutely. These are not going to change. What we've got to do is develop a better system for dealing with the consequences. That means better early warning systems globally, better incident management capacity to deal with them. But the most important thing is going to be better risk communications with the populations because, frankly, every one of these, whether it was Ebola, whether it was SARS, whether it's Zika today, require populations to take action at their level. But how, how long have you worked at the WHO? I've been with WHO for nearly 20 years, yeah. working in about 20 different countries. 20 years. So, I mean, I, I'll put this to you. I mean, I think if you even went a bit further back than that when the organisation was founded, people thought it would become the preeminent global organisation to do exactly what you've described. And yet, a lot of funding now goes to Gates, it goes to other institutions, other UN agencies dealing with health, because there is a feeling the WHO has not fulfilled its mandate. 
What do you say to that? Well, WHO was established as what's called a technical specialized agency of the UN system. So your job is to set the norms, set the standards. And what we saw in Ebola was really a huge shift. Um, And also we saw it in H1N1, where the world all of a sudden said, look, we also want you to be an operational agency. So what the world is asking is a technical specialized agency, which is a member state organization with 194 governments that vote on everything, to suddenly shift gears into an operation. It's great. And that's where we will be going. That's where WHO should be going. Um, and I, I wish the world had said that much earlier. Defending his institution. Uh, that was Dr. Bruce Aylward. Let me put this uh, to all of you. A lot of criticism over Ebola. Has the WHO got its act together this time? I think what we see um, here in the response to Zika by the WHO is them trying to reassert their leadership in global health and to sort of challenge what we've just heard from the WHO representative. Although it's a different committee, the committees are still called by the Director General and the Director General makes a decision to call the IHR committee. So she has done this in an effort to you know, regain their place. Even if it is just a technical agency, they are trying to show leadership and trying to ensure that their position is still in kind of the apex of the global health governance regime. Does everyone think they're making a good job of it this time? I think that they have acted appropriately in this case. One of the things I would say, and, and perhaps I'm just uh, a bit impatient on this, is uh, Bruce Aylward was saying how now we have this announcement, we expect more coordination with more surveillance, more response, more research... I haven't seen anything yet from WHO about a plan for how to do that. Because the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, you would expect to be in receipt of such a plan, I presume. Well, we are waiting. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that's one of the problems with this type of calling of a public health emergency, is it's it's very good to, in a rhetorical sense, to get the awareness at the global level that there is a problem, but it doesn't come with any financial backing. So it's a question of actually who's going to fund this research, who's going to contribute to it, and making sure that there is a mechanism behind it to fund the resources for well, the research. Dr Zaraba, to be fair, I mean, I got the well, impression uh, in re- recent years that people have not wanted to give them much money to the WHO because they weren't convinced it was going to be spent terribly well. Well, I think uh, it's very clear that uh, WHO has acted appropriately in the first place. As to whether they will get the money or will get the money as a global community to respond, I think that's yet to be seen. But I think there's goodwill globally, given the response that we've seen on the Ebola, the HIV and other outbreaks. I think there's hope that uh, something good will be done. Peter Dasher speaking. I also think that what WHO are doing is showing leadership, saying that this is an emergency, um, helps politicians in, in other countries open up their budgets to to work on this. So we've already seen in the US, the National Institutes of Health have put um, a funding mechanism in place to focus on Zika already, which is very fast. Um, Brazil's seems to be gathering momentum to deal with Zika. So I think that WHO is is rightfully adopting the leadership role and and helping other governments loosen the purse strings. Now then, you'll all have travelled the world, this panel, and you'll all have been bothered at night by this. No more irritating sound, and one mosquito can keep you up all night. And uh, the fact is that, as uh, many people 
are pointing out now in relation to Zika, but it's been true for malaria for years, the battle against the mosquito has by no means been won. Brazil's health minister, Marcelo Castro, said that despite the government's best efforts there, the mosquito has been in Brazil for three decades, this one that's causing Zika, and we are badly losing the battle against the mosquito. And the president there said much the same thing. And now then, back in uh, the old days, as it were, the Americans used a new wonder insecticide at the time called dichlorodiphenyl trichloroethane, DDT, to control mosquitoes in post-war Europe and indeed in the United States itself. Lining up for a new assignment, an anti-germ team goes to work with DDT sprays on America's Muscogee County. Dairies figure high in the targets for the miracle insecticide. 21 lorry loads of DDT are dusted around and cattle get special attention. With the possibility of a serious infantile paralysis epidemic, health authorities of the city of San Antonio, Texas, attack the germ carriers throughout the city. Tons of DDT are used in this fight against the dread disease, whose principal target is the young. Again, war has contributed one of its discoveries to save life. But DTT did become controversial in 72. It was banned in the United States with officials saying that there was a worry about harm it could do to the environment and also possible links with cancer. But uh, Professor Whitworth, I think I'm right in saying in Africa and Asia it's still used. So there is a distinction uh, between the policies and people beginning to say, look, maybe we should use it more widely again. The dangers may have been overstated. Could you just talk us through that issue? You're right. There are places where it is used. But I think people are much more sensitised to the problems that you can have with DDT or indeed any insecticides. And if you want to use something that is toxic, then you have to have a very good reason. Right. Is it, does anyone disagree with that and think that we should be using more DDT? No, I, I can't, you know, get behind using more of it. I think it's about other methods, you know, it's about fumigation, it's about removing the water sources, and there's just several other ways we can deal with these mosquitoes rather than using toxic chemicals on which may come into contact with, with humans. Let's just look at um, lessons learned from West Virus, which invaded the US very dramatically in the late 90s. Local counties and states could get federal funding to... Uh, clean up mosquito habitats and use larvicide in, uh, in standing water once they saw a case of West Nile. Now, that funding lasted a few years, but eventually it got stopped. It, it was cut off because the public interest in the disease sort of waned. This is always the problem with mosquito control. It's the same problem that allowed Aedes aegypti to, to boom again in Latin America because once it starts to go away, it's hard to persuade politicians to keep the pressure up to completely eradicate them. Okay, I'd be fascinated in in, in your views on uh, a bit of tape we've got coming up now because it is another potential method and it's genetically modifying mosquitoes. So it's an amazing new technology, but obviously it has very big implications, not least for mosquitoes. And I've been discussing it with Hayden Parry, CEO of the company that's pioneered this work. It's called Oxitec. It's in the UK. So how does this new GM technology work? Well, we release male, male mosquitoes. They all carry a self-limiting gene. They mate with wild females, and those wild females will have a number of offspring, up to 500, actually, in their lifetime, and they will all die. And do those offspring die before they themselves mate? What I'm really asking is, does this gene you're manipulating get carried down subsequent generations? No, it doesn't get carried on. Um, That's the beauty of this approach. It's it's what we would call self-limiting. 
So those offspring will die before they become functioning adults. And what sort of reductions in mosquito population does this lead to? Well, we've done a number of trials in Cayman and Panama and Brazil. And what we've shown in every time is that we can reduce the species Aedes aegypti by over 90%. 90%? And o- over what period is that? That's over six months. And it's very consistent because, at the end of the day, it's a numbers game. The more mosquitoes are out there, the more we release. We just need to outnumber the wild males. So it tends to be that we get over 90% and then we reach the end of the six-month period. Um, in one of our trials, we got up to 99% uh, reduction... Um, Had we carried on, we'd have probably got to 100%. Mosquito eggs can last quite a long time, so you would carry on releasing a small number of males because then if you get females coming into the area from outside or if you get eggs hatching out that have been sitting around for a long time, then our our males are in the right place. Let me preface my next question with the comment that, you know, many people who've suffered from very serious illness as a result of mosquitoes will be delighted with your research. But it is a very big thing to do. It's a major intervention to wipe out an animal's population in a particular area, and there are possible unintended consequences. How worried are you by that? Um, Personally, none at all. Really, with our approach, what you're looking at is a very, very controlled, monitored intervention. So, as I say, each one of the males we release dies. The offspring die. Each one of the offspring, even though they're going to die, they have a colour, they inherit a colour from their parent, from from the male parent, so we can track them. You're only actually affecting the one species that you're targeting, so it's extremely precise. If you're targeting the mosquito that spreads dengue, chikungunya and Zika, you're not going to affect other mosquitoes. It's just that one species. And if you think about it, this mosquito, Aedes aegypti, comes out of Egypt... And it spread itself around the world. In fact, we spread it, humans spread it, in cars and boats and planes. And when you're dealing with Brazil, it shouldn't be there. In the mid-70s in Brazil, the Brazilian government actually said, we don't have this mosquito in Brazil and we don't have dengue fever. Um, And then here we are, 50 years later, there's 2 million cases a year. They've had chikungunya, they've had now got Zika virus, all from this mosquito. Even if you took it out of the whole of Brazil, you'd be actually putting Brazil back to where they were about 50 years ago. If you got the contract to eliminate global mosquitoes, would you have pause for thought or would you think, yeah, let's do that? (laughs) Do you know, to be honest, I'd refuse the contract because I would say, I tell you what, let's do this stepwise. Let's go and reduce mosquitoes and take out this um, disease-spreading mosquito in your first town, your second town, your third town, your first city, second city. Protect people, that's the key. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, new development. That's Hayden Parry from Oxitec. Right, views, please. This is Jimmy Whitworth here. I'm generally supportive of this new technology. I think we desperately need new anti-mosquito tools. At the moment, we're using techniques which were really devised for yellow fever control and have been the same for... 80, 90 years. I think this is a safe technology because the the larvae die before they actually become um, adults. I do take the point that this is an imported mosquito into Brazil, and so removing it in one way you could see as ecological sanitation. But I, I 
do have just a slight worry that if you get rid of these mosquitoes in Brazil now, what is going to fill that ecological niche? Right, but if there was nothing there before, if they weren't there before, presumably it'll just go back to whatever was there 50 years ago. Maybe, or maybe... Or maybe not. N- maybe not, I yes, see, yes, indeed. Okay. My concern with this is I think, I, I, I agree, I think it would be a very useful tool and I think it's very exciting science that we can do this. But if we're talking about doing this at a global level and trying to eradicate any mosquito which carries Zika or could carry Zika, it's going to cost a hell of a lot of money. And how long is it going to take? I mean, this has only been done in trials so far, six months at a time. Uh, let, let's get Dr Zaraba's view from, from Nairobi. What do you think of this? Would you like uh, this you know, genetically modified mosquito flying around in Nairobi? I think uh, as long as the technology is itself, ecologically, it's not good to prevent something that has potential, that will cost an arm and a leg. So it's uh, probably something that may not be affordable in many places. So we shouldn't discard the old technologies that have been here for uh, 100 years, but they still work. So uh, we should not discard them at this point. I'm, I'm, hearing, I'm hearing sort of support. I mean, the, the reservations about the cost, but otherwise. But what do you think, Peter Dashak? Yeah, let me let me be a bit of a luddite. I mean, I think it's cool new technology, and I think this is a, a a common theme we see in in public health and especially in pandemic outbreaks. When Ebola struck, there were uh, instant cries for "Where's the vaccine?" And um, as a species, we expect we're so technologically advanced that we're going to develop these magic, these silver bullet solutions to every disease on the planet. When we already have some very good solutions, which is clearing up the environment and removing the introduced mosquito by removing its breeding sites. And that would go a long way to really reducing the abundance. And it's a lot cheaper. And at the same time, I think Jimmy Woolworth made this point, we have other mosquitoes still spreading that have been introduced, like the the Asian Mm -hmm. tiger mosquito, moving further and further north. It just got into New York uh, two years ago. I know that because I live there and I'm bitten by it. And that carries a a bunch of um, other diseases which we're susceptible to. I think we've got to start readdressing our relationship with, with the environment to the point where we actually stop introducing alien mosquitoes to different places. That's probably the cheapest way to deal with this by not letting it happen in the first place. I'd like to raise another issue here, and that is that there are increasing rumours within Brazil that genetically modified mosquitoes are actually the cause of the microcephaly here. Now, I'm not entirely sure whether the mosquitoes that we were hearing about are being linked in this way or if this is just an erroneous interpretation of what is happening. I would say that these genetically modified mosquitoes are part of the solution, not part of the problem here. Yes, I must say, I mean, we did look at that issue when we were preparing the programme and thought, to be honest, we wouldn't raise it because it didn't seem there was any evidence to sort of back it up. I mean, I couldn't see where it was quite coming from. But do you you disagree with that? I don't disagree with that, but it, it raises the issue that within outbreaks, epidemics generally, rumours come up. Yes, They always come up. And actually, rumour management and control is an integral part of outbreak control. Okay, I'm going to do some rumour control. (laughs) We're not going to talk about it. (laughs) Well done. So, now then, uh, I just want to ask you, if the world were rid of mosquitoes, how big a benefit would that be to humankind? Well, well, let let me start off with a a concern. You know, if we really did eradicate all mosquitoes, we're going to be missing a significant part of the ecosystem, which is 
obviously serves some purpose in keeping the balance of one species to another. It would probably cause all sorts of complex and real problems for people if we actually eradicated all mosquitoes. But these are introduced foreign mosquitoes. So um, probably by eradicating the alien mosquitoes, we're doing the ecosystem a favour. For the last bit of the programme, I want to ask you all about pandemics and the growing, well, it seems the growing threat that this seems to be happening more and more often. And there are some pretty clear reasons why that might be the case with globalisation. So, uh, Dr. Abdullah Zaraba, can you start us on this? Do you think it is correct to say there is a growing threat of an increasing number of dangerous pandemics? In the last 20 years, we've seen uh, a number of uh, outbreaks. The good news is uh, the effects of those outbreaks have been minimal compared to, for example, the Spanish flu. And uh, one thing I can add, pandemics or outbreaks, epidemic outbreaks, will always be here with us because they have been, they are part of the ecosystem. I think uh, what we have to do is uh, to have systems, early warning systems, to be able to detect the outbreaks and uh, have means of responding and uh, mitigating the impacts of those outbreaks. But uh, Dr. Zaraba, isn't it right to say that there's a particular issue with animal to human infection? Yeah, but uh, like uh, the previous speaker said, I, I think uh, wiping out a certain animal or <laughs> vector for that matter has implications for the ecosystem, for example. Are we going to wipe out monkeys because they, they have a lot of viruses that can cross human beings? I think uh, th- that is uh, something probably inconceivable. There, sure, sure. There but it, of resistance. I take that point, but there may be other solutions, basically reducing contact between humans and some of these animals. But Claire, what do you think? I just wanted to come back in on your question about whether we're having more pandemics these days. Yes. I'm, I'm not sure we can make necessarily that causal link. Is it that we're having more pandemics? Was it simply that we're hearing about them more? Um, international law changed in 2005, so you had to report any disease which may pose a concern rather than previous iterations of that law, which said it had to be yellow fever, cholera or um, plague. So obviously now people are report- reporting more. So is it that it's actually happening more or just we're hearing about it more? And linked to that is the you know mass growth of communications, well, instantaneous yeah. communications around the world. It's a great question. What's the answer? I mean, do you have a view on that? Well, I think it might well, just, I think it's the latter. I think it's reporting more and kind of media communications, which means that you can hear about an outbreak uh-huh. within a matter of minutes anywhere in the world rather than waiting for a long time to hear about these. Peter Daszak, I can hear you're trying to come in. Yeah, I mean, look, we we did a study a few years ago where we we went back over the past 60 years and plotted every new emerging disease. And we looked at its origin and the likely cause of it. And what what we did that was important to to Claire's point is we corrected the... It it certainly was increasing over time. What we did is we corrected that by looking at how many people are working on infectious diseases over the last six decades. And they're increasing too. Even once you've done that, there still is a significant rise. And the the most significant group among them that's rising most rapidly uh, of pathogens, usually viruses that emerge from wildlife into people. I agree with Claire that also we've now got the communication so rapid that we we hear about it a lot quicker. But there is certainly a rise. Now, what would be causing that? When you look at the causes of this um, wildlife to human transmission, which Zika is one of, uh, many other viruses, SARS virus, Ebola, uh, Lyme disease, West Nile virus, they're increasing very rapidly. And probably the cause of that is the things we do to wildlife. So we don't need to eradicate monkeys. We just need to leave them alone a bit more. We need to leave them in their natural habitat 
don't eat them, don't build roads into the forest, don't increase our agricultural intensification around those populations. Those are the things that have driven recent pandemics. If we can somehow deal with that, we may reduce the rise. Yeah, but the truck, well, I, I, Peter Tashak, I'm just going to put this to you, though. When you talk about all your research and all these sort of amazing projects you've got going to try and control the future risks, just, I don't know, it occurs to me that it's so unpredictable, this whole area, that you must be, to some extent, sort of wandering blindly in the dark, trying to do helpful things. But, you know, I mean, is that unfair? That's a great, a, a great analogy, but it's not true. I mean, look, we, we have a programme funded by USAID called Predict. So I can't say that we can't predict things. Yes, we can. These are predictable events. Ecologists have been trying to understand ecosystem complexity using complex mathematical equations for the past 50 years, and they're doing it successfully. If you can predict what happens in a complex ecosystem, you can predict how human interaction with that ecosystem is going to drive pandemic risk. And there are many examples of that through um, understanding patterns of disease spread, through understanding the increased spillover of pathogens from wildlife into people. These are predictable. What we've really got to do is listen to the predictions and try and do something about them. And Zika was one of those that was predicted to spread. But I think it's also not just about predicting the big hitters. It's not about the big kind of hyped up diseases like Zika and Ebola. We shouldn't just focus on those. We should also think about, I mean, as we've been talking about, diseases that are spread by by mosquitoes, the kind of burden of everyday disease, which we see all around the world, which gets completely Um, missed in conversations like this. I mean, everyone likes the sexy news story about the big killer disease. And actually, what's what's killing more people is the everyday burden of disease, of diseases of poverty, diseases in parts of the world that that aren't researched because they haven't got the big wow factor. If you're really worried about it, sort of look after people's economic situation and, and things change, right? Well, yeah, but I mean, this Zika disease, you know, it's only become a a big issue recently because of this suspected link to microcephaly. What about other diseases that are spread by the same mosquitoes, dengue, chikungunya? You know, these are also diseases which have a massive burden on on populations. Okay. well, look, thank you all very much for helping us understand what's going on and to put it all into perspective and to talk about uh, just what the threats are and how it may be possible to deal with them. So thanks to you, Peter Dashak in Dubai, to Dr. Abdullah Ziraba in Kenya, in Nairobi, to Claire Wenham and uh, Professor Jimmy Whitworth here in London. And that's it for this edition of NewsHour Extra. You can listen back to the programme. If you go to bbcworldservice.com forward slash NewsHour Extra, one word, that will take you there and you can sort of stream it there. But you can also get the podcast and then you get every edition every week. It's one hour, one topic each week. And uh, just put BBC News Hour Extra Podcast or something like that into your search engine, into your podcast provider. And then the other thing to do is do get in touch with us. We do try to respond honestly uh, to every email. And that is newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk. But for now, that's it. Thanks very much for listening. And from all of us here, goodbye. <laughs>